As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Got Invention Radio. I'm your host, Brian Freed, and tonight we have two guests on our show. We have Julie Blake. She's an event planner and most recently planned the Toy and Game Inventor Camp in Toronto just last week. And we have Benjamin Dermer. He is the VP of Inventor Relations. Anybody ever play those headbands game or Stratego, Stratego uh, Aqua, what is it? Which ones are they, Ben? Aquadoodles. Aquadoodles. Aquadoodles, maybe, yeah. Yeah, name a couple other ones. Uh, Air Hogs, Bakugan, got a new robot dog coming out. I uh, work for a company called Spin Master Toys. Um, so plenty of toys coming out. Excellent. Thank you for that, Ben. Uh, okay, so let's start off with uh, Julie. If you could just give us a, a quick uh, intro on yourself and, and uh, tell, us, uh, tell us what you do. Sure. Well, um, I'm an event planner, and I plan all kinds of different events, um, mostly arts and culture events. And I recently started planning some um, special events relating to a cause that's close to my heart, which is kids' literacy and creativity. Um, so last week, uh, I planned a camp in Toronto, as you mentioned, the Toy and Game Inventor Camp. Um, and I planned that with a couple of awesome nonprofits from Toronto, Story Planet and Maker Kids, um, and we wanted to put together a week-long camp where kids could come in, and uh, over the course of the week, they would have all the support and tools needed to invent their own toy or game. Okay, very interesting. And Ben from Spin Master, Benjamin Dermer, tell us a little bit about what you do as the VP of Inventor Relations at Spin Master. Uh, so basically, I try and find toy ideas. I spend most of my time uh, meeting with designers and inventors um, around the world trying to find new stuff that we can make. Uh, every year, we got to come out with new toys, just like other toy companies. And um, as some of your listeners might know, in the toy industry, uh, most ideas actually come from third-party inventors. Um, so I work with them day in, day out, trying to find and develop new stuff. Very interesting. I'm sure that's got to be a lot of fun for you. That's yeah, not bad. <laughs> <laughs> The most important, probably the one of the fun parts is really getting a chance to play with all these toys, whether or not you take them, just to see them and, and to interact with them, right? Yeah, I see about uh, 3,000 things a year, 3,000 new toy ideas a year. So they're not all fun to play with, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is the biggest perk of the job. Okay. Well, we're going to have a very interesting show here tonight. We're going to be finding out a little bit more about what happens at a toy and game invention camp that just recently ran in Toronto last week and how there's different things that are going on for kids, hopefully in the United States very soon, and Julie will go through that with us. And then what we'll do later on in the show, Ben is going to give us some great tips on what makes a great toy or game and what Spin Master specifically is looking for when they... Uh, work with toy inventors, and also what's going to be really great is tips for inventors. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. Ben is going to help us and give us some great advice to be able to keep our ideas moving forward. How does that sound, guys? Sounds good. <laughs> okay, great. All right, it's always fun to have two people on the show. All right, so Julie, now tell us about this toy and game invention camp that ran in Toronto. So I'm a kid. I, I think I'm a kid. I'm a kid, and I have this interesting idea, or maybe I don't have any idea. But my kids say, my but my parents said, you know what, you need to get involved in this invention camp. Or how does it work? 
So the camp that we ran last week in Toronto um, was the first of what we hope will be many camps. As you mentioned, uh, we're hoping to do some more in the U.S. Uh, next year, hopefully in Boston, San Francisco, Chicago, and New York, um, possibly some other cities as well. Uh, so what we wanted to do was give kids a chance to come in, whether they had an idea or not, and provide them with step-by-step guidelines for how they could invent their own toy or game. And so what we did over the course of the week was we helped the kids um, do some brainstorming. We talked to them about what uh, what um, toy and game inventors do. And we talked to them about what makes a good toy or game. Um, and as I said, we walked through some different brainstorming activities to help the kids come up with their own creative idea. Um, and the second half of the camp was more um, hands-on where we had the kids um, using 3D printers and software and existing toys and games and sort of packing those to create um, something finished by the end of the week. Well, that's fantastic to have that kind of workshop for uh, for kids. And that's something that's really special, and hopefully we can bring that into the United States very soon. What made you choose Toronto? Uh, well, Toronto is close to where I'm based, which is in Montreal. Okay. Um, and as I said, we worked with a couple of really great um, nonprofit organizations there that were interested in doing a toy or game camp, which is uh, Story Planet and Maker Kids. Uh, so Story Planet is a nonprofit organization in Toronto that does children's programming, and they work a lot with um, after-school programs and summer workshops and camps for kids. Um, and they were really interested in doing something with toys and games. And Maker Kids is a workshop space for kids that has the 3D printer, and they get kids doing a lot of hands-on building. So what we wanted to do was put those two together and have the kids first work on their ideas at Story Planet and then go to Maker to actually build their idea. Okay. That's very interesting. So the parents that are signing their kids up, are they concerned about their intellectual property being, uh, their ideas being stolen from this invention camp? That didn't seem to be an issue last week. It's certainly something that, you know, we're sensitive to in terms of the kids' ideas. But the camp was really sort of a preliminary step of brainstorming, and it was a very collaborative, um, creative atmosphere where um, really where I think that type of uh, sort of copyright type of issue wouldn't come up until a little later in the creative process. So it, it didn't pose any issues for us last week. Okay. So, whoops. So you're, walk, you're walking them through when they come up with the idea to really developing it where they're researching to make sure that it's not somebody else's intellectual property. They're doing the drawings. They're taking the drawings. They're bringing them to life. Then you're putting them into a uh, 3D machine where they're actually seeing a prototype of their invention, their, their toy or game. Uh, what, about, what about if it's a, a game? Let's say it's a board game. What are you doing with that? We did have a couple of kids at the camp that were working on more traditional games, including one board game. And what we did for that was we actually had a lot of existing board games available and materials, craft materials that we had brought in for the camp to um, allow the children to sort of hack a game that existed. So we cut up existing board games. We gave them access to different spinners and dice and different games pieces so that they could build something new from existing game parts. Okay. And then once they have that game to a point where they're playing it and everybody's enjoying it, what happens at the end of the at the end of the camp? So we had some kids that finished their projects sort of early in the week and others were still working on them on the Friday. Um, it was a week long camp. So actually it was the child that was working on a board game who was still working on his game board on Friday afternoon. Um, but what we did on the last day was we sort of had a, a play testing day where everybody tried out each other's games and toys and gave some feedback. We had created a rating form, um, which we used, and we rated some popular toys and games. And we also gave each other feedback on the ideas. And it was pretty interesting for those of us that were running the camp because we really had no idea what the kids were going to come up with. And we, we were in the position where we needed to come up with the tools and resources to help them make their idea a reality over the course of the week. So it was quite a good challenge for us as well. Hmm. So now the kids have their board games and their toys that they've developed, and most of them brought it to some sort of point where 
It's uh, a raw idea that they can either plan on potentially developing themselves and marketing, hopefully, you know, with their parents' help or their, or themselves because kids are doing more than parents these days, especially on the web and making a website and e-commerce and all that. But then you also got Spin Master involved and, uh, and Ben's company, Spin Master. So how and, and why did you get Spin Master there? Uh, so, like I said, the camp was run with two nonprofits, and obviously, you know, financial resources were limited. Um, so, I was seeking a sponsor to help us fund the camp and also offer some scholarships to kids that maybe couldn't afford to, to go to camp. Um, so, I met with Ben, and um, we were very happy that the master agreed to come on board as the title sponsor for the camp and helped us really to get those resources in place. They donated some toys and um, some funds to help us run the camp, which also allowed us to give some scholarships out to kids. That's very nice. And and did Spin Master, did Ben and, and Spin Master actually look at the products and see uh, their ideas and see if it's something that he may potentially license? <laughs> well, on uh, the last day of the camp, um, yes, I did... Uh, go over the list of all of the uh, creations with Ben, and we um, discussed how many of these ideas might actually possibly be, you know, feasible or marketable. Um, And one of the great things and one of the great learning opportunities of last week was to see out of 16 kids, you know, what types of ideas came up and how many ideas might actually be something that could go to market. And it was very interesting to see that. Very nice. And how many people actually attended the camp? So there were 16 kids. 16? 16. Okay. And their parents also stay there with them at the event? Uh, Not throughout the week. What we did was we had the parents come in on the Friday on the last day to see what the kids had created. And that was a really fun day. We had a screening where we showed the kids commercials, which they made during the course of the week. Um, they, They actually filmed and edited their own commercials for their toy or game product, which is definitely one of the most fun parts of the week. So we screened those commercials and, um, you know, dimmed the lights and used a projector and had popcorn, and the parents came in and saw what their kids had created over the course of the week. Got it. And how old were these kids? Uh, so kids were between 8 and 14 years old. The, Julie, this sounds spectacular. I would love to have something like this in the United States. It sounds like you're you're onto something here, and uh, and the kids must have enjoyed it, and Spin Master must have enjoyed being a part of it. What what are your plans for taking it into the United States? You mentioned that uh, you were looking to expand it into the states. What what are your plans? Uh, we definitely do want to run similar camps um, across the U.S. in 2014. And uh, we're starting to compile a list of potential partners to do that right now. There's a number of different spaces um, that offer children's programming that have already reached out and expressed interest in doing something like this. So um, what I'm working on right now is putting together sort of a workbook guide for other locations that might like to do something similar. Uh, We have lots of resources that came out of last week that we can share. So our goal is to um, set this up in many different locations across the U.S. And like I said, we have a few cities already, four or five cities that um, have already reached out to us about doing something. Very nice. Julie, it sounds fantastic, and I wish you all the best with future endeavors of this camp. And I'm sure that the word will spread with the 16 that you had, and having a sponsor like Spin Master to be involved is really an accomplishment. So I commend you on your on your efforts there, and congratulations. Thanks. So, Mr. Benjamin, Mr. Benjamin Dermer from uh, from Spin Master. So, tell us, Spin Master is an unbelievable company. Uh, you can go on any of the shelves in any of the stores, and you see Spin Master games and toys and all kinds of fun things that are on the shelves there. Tell us a little bit more about what Spin Master is and what they do. So we are a uh, full-line toy and game company. Um, we've been around for uh, almost 20 years now, um, and we do toys and games in all categories. So that means we do stuff for preschoolers, um, stuff for, for older kids, girls, boys. We do craft activities. We do uh, with a, with the biggest maker of flying toys in the world. Uh, a lot of your listeners might know the Airhogs line of um, uh, remote control oh, sure. uh, helicopters and airplanes. 
Um, so yeah, we just make quite a few toys, uh, and every year, like I said, we have uh, new stuff coming out, and uh, we're just always hunting around for new ideas. So you're also based in in Canada. What part? I'm based in Toronto, and divide my time between uh, Toronto and our office in Los Angeles. Okay. And when you're going through these toys, I mean, you have a ton of SKUs that are out there. They're mostly to mass retail. They're specialty stores, your catalogs, right? You have pretty much a pretty wide range of distribution. Yeah, we sell just about everywhere in the world that you can buy toys. I mean, obviously, the mass market is, is, our, is our bread and butter. And we're always, trying to find, we're always trying to find toys that can be really you know, big hits and, and uh, reach lots of kids. You know, just recently, Ben, I've been hearing quite a bit of inventors specifically targeting making them making a great toy or game and they you know they feel very passionate about it tell me you must see so many different variations of different games out there and 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 new toys tell me what makes a great toy or game uh, so that's a hard question if i knew that i i'd be making them myself um i think i think for us and you know i can only really speak for, for what works for us um, the first part is magic. Uh, you know, toys, toys aren't necessarily like other categories. We're not, we're not just looking for, for pure utility. We're looking for real entertainment value. We're looking for stuff that's going to, you know, delight kids and adults. Um, so, so magic is the first key, uh, and it's finding something that is really new and really exciting and, uh, you know, just, just make someone sort of take notice. Um, that's, that's obviously the, the first and most obvious part. Um, the toy industry though, it is, it is a business. So there's all sorts of different, you know, business parameters that come into play. Um, you know, whether it be the, the safety of a toy, the, the potential for engineering, um, the price of a toy, just, just the way that it, it's made. Um, so, so there's all sorts of parameters that come into there. So you might have an incredible idea, but if it can't actually be made and mass produced to reach kids, it's not the greatest idea ever. Um, and then, and then thirdly, um, is, is stuff that in some way will resonate in the mass market. And, and that means something that, uh, has a certain familiarity and makes a certain amount of sense to people so that when they see it, um, it's new and it's exciting and it really delights them, but it's not so unfamiliar that they don't understand it because as a company who's mass marketing products, one of the most important things is that our products connect with people and that they understand them. So I'd say those three things combined are, are the elements of a great toy, but there's plenty of room for variations. So, you know, like I said, we see thousands of things a year, and, uh, and there's a lot of things we see that we love that we just can't make, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, every year, we, you know, we're, we're constantly surprised by the, the innovation out there. So you said the first word was it has to have magic. So when you see something and right away is it that do you get that feeling of magic that you have you found something special or is it uh it's just something else that may be something too similar than what's out there already or not enough of a change do you find that um well i'd say you know having a fair amount of knowledge about what's been done in the past uh, I'm, a, I'm a tough cookie to impress but uh, i think right away when someone shows you something i know if there's something there uh and that magic i mean it doesn't have to take you know, I, I might have a, a bit of expertise in, in knowing the history stuff, but you can put it down in front of anyone. You can put it in front of a five-year-old or a 90-year-old. Um, anyone's going to be able to tell you if something's cool there. And typically the products that we look for and the ones in my experience that are most successful are, are pretty obvious from the moment you see them. Okay. Many people that, that talk about new toys and games, a lot of them are almost spin-offs of existing games or toys. Do you find that too often? And what does it take to really make it so it's its own unique game without infringing on something or, or being too similar to what's already out there? Well, it depends on the company. I mean, when you're, you know, when you're launching a product, there are certain products that just naturally fit within the context, context of existing brands and are considerably easier to launch if they're within the context of an existing brand. Um, other times, uh, a product may be best suited to, to, to sort of living on its own. It really depends on the product and the category. Uh, I think other companies maybe are a little bit less reluctant to launch brand new stuff um, as compared to us. Um, being a, a younger and slightly smaller company, we're, we're quite aggressive in terms of 
you know, finding truly new stuff and, and new opportunities. That said, you know, if you can find something that has a natural bridge to, you know, bridge to familiarity, a natural connection to the, to the audience, whether it be through an association with one of your brands or through licensing of a third party brand, like let's say a Disney or a Nickelodeon, um, that's great too. You know, it's, it's kind of like Hollywood. There's, there's room for Iron Man three and there's also room for, you know, wholly original stuff. <laughs> so I just want to make this point though, Ben, let's say you have these headbands and, can you just de describe, you probably have a better pitch than I would describe it, but tell us about Headbands, one of your most popular games, right? Yeah, Headbands is a very popular game for us. Um, just just uh, for the sake of context, Headbands is a game that's been around for a very long time. Um, in its branded form and in its, its you know, um, sort of parlor game form, it's a game where a person holds a card in their head that has an identifying picture of, of who they're supposed to be. And through a series of questions and answers, they try and divine who they are um, among a, a group setting. So that, that game has existed probably you know, for over 100 years in terms of a, as a parlor game. Uh, some people may have seen it in that Quentin Tarantino movie, Inglorious Bastards. They play a version of it. So Headbands was a, a game that was commercialized um, years ago. Uh, I don't know the history, probably over 20 years ago, I'd say, yeah. and has been with various companies over the years, and, and we just acquired it in the last couple of years because we were always really big fans of it. Um, so that's the history on that one. That's not, that's not, that was a new invention when it came to us. That was an existing property that was known in the market that we had acquired. Okay, so if somebody came to you, Ben, and said, I have a great new version of headbands, let's, let's do wristbands, you know, do you hear those kind of ideas? Is that not what you're looking for or is it something as simple as just a minor modification like that that you would hear from an inventor and license from them oh we certainly might um every year we develop a, a, a brand wish list we would call it um and that's based on our marketing teams uh every year our marketing team develops a, a brand development plan so next year we might say we're looking for to have three different versions of headbands on the market we're looking to have two different versions of Quelph, and we're going to take Beat the Parents, we're going to advertise a new feature on television. So depending on that, uh, you know, if I see a certain invention that might fit in with that, for sure we might license a variation of headbands. Wow. Uh, that said, if it happens to be in a year where we have no plans to expand or if we already have internal concepts, it might not be the best idea. So it's, it's, hard, it's hard doing that without being in, in concert with the toy company that you're pitching. It's always best to really have a personal relationship with them to know um, to know what they're looking for. Okay, so just put me on the list for the wristbands. What can I say? I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> now, um, now, when an inventor is actually going to pitch an idea to somebody like Spin Master and yourself or another inventor, uh, uh, another toy or game company, um, the rumor has it, and correct me if I'm wrong or maybe it's different with you, is that you need a licensing agent specifically that's approved within the toy and game industry. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, it really depends on your relationship with the company, on your, on your level of professionalism, on, on you know, how seriously you pursue your inventions. Um, at Spin Master, we try and be very democratic. We try and see people of all walks of life, even if they're not pro professional inventors. Um, unfortunately, that's not always possible. So... In, the, in certain cases, we do recommend that people go through a licensing agent. I mean, typically I work with professional toy inventors who have a, a, a reputation and have a bit of a history to them. You know, I'll, I'll tell you the honest truth. I think, you know, if you're, if you're a casual inventor who has one or two ideas that you're developing, I, it certainly is not a bad idea to use a licensing agent. They have a, they have a, a relationship, they have an expertise, and it's their job to sell. That said, I think if you're a truly professional man and you're truly dedicated to the craft, um, you can talk your way into any company because all those inventors that don't use licensing agents, they got there somewhere in the first place. So, but it's a matter of, again, investing a certain amount into the products that you're doing and having you know, a sufficiently obvious opportunity for the companies involved. Okay, well, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair, and that's very respectful for an inventor to be able to approach you. But you have expectations, and the inventor has expectations. So... With your expectations, and you mentioned some of them with uh, level of expertise and how to pitch it and obviously how to vet it, you know, they have to take the emotion out of their own invention and see if it's something that is viable for the, for the, and realistic for the market. So, from this note, from an inventor uh, coming to you, Ben, what are your expectations? Do you want to see a product that, or, or a prototype, or do you want to see chicken scratch on a piece of paper? <laughs> Um, you know, do you want to see 
you know, the finished product. Give us some expectations so we can we we're prepared when we uh, present to somebody like you. Well, from experience, I really have no expectations because I've seen everything <laughs> everything uh, under the sun. Okay. Um, what I'd like to see, I mean, I'd like to see the product finished, engineered in a box, and ready to go. But that's not always, you know, that's not always really possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the job of the inventor to 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 present whatever is going to take whatever it's going to take to convince the company to do it. Uh, and that, that varies from product to product. We have licensed things from, from a drawing on a piece of paper. Um, it's certainly rare, um, but it has happened, um, all the way up to times when people have shown us stuff that are that is you know 90% finished, but that last 10% was the most important part. It, it really depends. I mean, if you were to come in and let's say pitch me a remote control helicopter, if that thing doesn't fly, and if it isn't manufacturable, we're really not that interested in seeing it because in the case of remote control helicopters, that's the invention. That's the hardest part. I mean, anyone can make anything fly with sufficient motors, power, battery, all that kind of jazz. Um, so, so, so some sense of toy engineering, toy development is, is really important in that case. Um, in the case of a doll, like let's say, you know, a fashion doll, like a Barbie doll, um, we know how to build those. That's not really an issue. There's no issue of, of figuring out how to make it or how to produce it. What's what's important in that area is not so much the theme or the name. It's really the look, the style, how that style is going to translate into a three-dimensional prototype. Um, so it really depends across the board, um, you know, what, what the most important part is. It, it certainly never hurt. I understand the dilemma for inventors is because you don't want to invest too much in any single idea because your job is to come up with plenty of ideas. Um, and you don't know which ideas a company is going to want, so you don't know where to invest. That said, it's the exact same problem for a toy company or for any company. Um, they don't know which ideas to develop either. And every time you pitch something to a company, you're, you're pitching an opportunity, but you're also presenting a, a whole series of questions. And the questions might range from, is this manufacturable? How much does it cost? Um, how is the mechanism really going to be developed? Um, is it really going to be fun? All, all these questions that lie between the invention, prototype, or concept, and the finished product. So certainly, the more of those questions that you can answer, the better job you're going to have of, of convincing a company, the better job you're going to have of getting your ideas forward. Um, and one of the most important parts for, I think, everyone to remember is that when you come in to pitch a toy company, and this, I, I assume, applies to all industries dealing with inventors, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'm the front man for it. I'm the first person to see something. And if I see opportunity, I then have to come back and, and show it to my people. And, you know, I have a panel of people, including the executives from the company, and we talk about what works. But um, I have to then communicate your vision through to everybody else. So if your vision is not that refined and it's not that specific and there's still a lot of questions to be answered, it's only going to be that much more difficult for me to persuade other people. So, so in my opinion, and, and it really varies from person to person, but I like, this, I like a certain amount of specificity. Uh, it's very hard for someone to come in and show something that just isn't quite worked out or isn't quite developed. Um, it's much better to come in and say, this is what the product is. This is how it works. This is what it does. And give me the opportunity to be the kid and see if it's fun. So let's say I have this, uh, you're, you're doing a lot of flying uh, objects. So if I come up with a really cool design for a helicopter, I can present the design to you without having it fly? Is that no, okay? like I was saying, in the case in the case of a helicopter, it would absolutely have to fly. Okay, that's what I. And that's what I was saying. Is it, yeah, because in the case of a helicopter, the invention is getting it to fly. I mean, I could I could sit we could sit down here on the phone and brainstorm five hundred ideas for helicopters that yep. each would be good enough to market. You know, a helicopter that does a loop, a helicopter that explodes, a helicopter that shoots lasers. <laughs> if you can't figure out how to get it made, right. you know, that, that's the hard part. Okay, so I I wanted to be clear on that. Inventors and resources for inventors. If you're listening and you have questions for Ben and Julie, please email me, brian at gotinvention.com. I, I had a couple questions come in and I'm incorporating them as we're, as we're going through, so thank you for your questions. Um, intellectual property. Tell us what your take is on that, Ben, and also, since we're broadcasting in the United States, although there are pe- many people that listen in Canada and other parts of the world, Tell us about intellectual property when we're presenting an idea to you, Does, uh, how important that is and uh, what what it takes to uh, present to you uh, being that you're in Canada. Um, well, we, I, I deal with America 95% of the time um, and we sell, you know, our main market is the United States. So as far as we're concerned, I don't think we're, we're any, any different from any uh, American company. 
uh, in terms of intellectual property, there's a couple of different angles to take on that. First of all, um, you know, is, is w to what degree should an inventor be concerned with any matters of intellectual property? And that philosophically varies from person to person, from inventor to inventor. Um, in my case, I'm not that concerned about it. I mean, it's certainly great if someone does their research to try and make sure that something does not infringe. And, and to the best of their abilities, an inventor should do that. And that's my primary concern, is not so much as something patented, not so much as something unique, but if, just to make sure that, sure that something actually isn't infringing someone else's intellectual property. Because... That's, uh, it's part of our process, but oftentimes we'll go down the road and invest concealment money only to find out that there's some, you know, conflict that prevents us from going forward. Okay. Um, oftentimes, you know, inventors will ask, should I patent this? Do you expect us to have, a, you know, me to have a patent when it comes to you? In our case, absolutely not. It's just the toy industry is, um, you're lucky if a product lasts on the market more than a year or two to begin with. Um, and, you know, for every 10 inventions that an inventor comes up with, they're lucky if they license one. So the idea of patent everything you're doing is really not that worthwhile. Now, there are certainly times when inventors come up with something that's truly unique, truly unique, truly proprietary, that's going to have a real benefit in the toy industry. And in that case, I'd, I'd recommend wholeheartedly, if you think there's value in it, go ahead and patent it. Um, likewise, in the case of something like, let's say, a fashion doll or... Um, or especially a game, a board game, mm -hmm. uh, there are certain products where the name is almost more important than the product itself. I mean, certainly in the case of board games, if you look at most of our, our games, they have very catchy titles that communicate the product right away. Um, you know, Headbands is a great example. I mean, one of the, one of the few things that you know, distinguishes that game on the market is the name Headbands, which is such a great trademark. Right. So in that case, I, I definitely recommend that inventors don't come and present games with names that have not been vetted um, through the trademark office. And even better than that, if you really believe in it, I'd recommend securing the trademark. Uh, it's much cheaper to secure a trademark than it is to get a patent. That's right. And also, uh, as far as the instructions, uh, is to potentially copyright uh, those. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I probably wouldn't uh, recommend an inventor. It really depends on, on what type of inventor you'd want to be. Uh, in, in my experience, dealing with professional toy and game inventors, that's not a crucial part. I mean, we're going to rewrite the instructions anyway. Okay. If you're, if you're, I mean, I would want to distinguish in this, just, just for the sake of, of clarification, oftentimes toys and games get lumped together. Uh, and, and they're actually quite different in many ways. Most toy inventors don't really plan on bringing their toys to market themselves. It's very rare. So, so their whole, you know, business is, is, is based around a licensing play. There seems to be a bit more of a blurring when it comes to game inventors because there are some game inventors who, who fancy themselves, who consider themselves to be inventors, but they also plan on producing their game. Uh, in that case, they have a completely different set of legal issues to deal with, um, whether it be copywriting, trademarking, patents, all that jazz. I'm really just speaking from, that, from the perspective of, of someone who's, who's doing something only for the purpose of licensing it to a toy company. Okay, so would you prefer that I make a toy or game myself, start to sell it, see that it's selling well, and then present it to you, or to present it to you before I either have success or failure on my own? Um. You know, it, it really, I mean, again, I deal with inventors first and foremost, so so I'm just looking for inventions. I'm just looking for concepts that are, are well-developed, you know, very easy to communicate, um, that have a certain amount of love and attention put into them, and are developed with, with an eye and an understanding for the toy industry. Now, certainly our company, you know, acquires things that have already been on the market, and as an inventor, you may very well want to take something to market. Um, certainly for us, if you can get something out there and prove success, that's going to help tremendously. In fact, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a balancing act between ingenuity and success. You know, a, a, boring, a boring bad game can find success in the markets. And if you have a boring bad game and you're able to find success in the market, then there will be value in that game. Whereas if you just try and license a boring bad game, it's not going to have a lot of value. So certainly there are cases where because an inventor put the extra time to take something to market and to, to, to market it and to find an audience for it and all that jazz, they were able to find something that was maybe otherwise not as, um, not as you know, distinguishable. They were able to invest you know, their energy into, into, into adding value to it. Okay. That's not really my job, though. My job is just to deal with inventions. Got it. So now there's an, an inventor that has a relationship with you and they don't really, they know already not to worry about the intellectual property and the name and all that stuff if they don't have the money. That's one thing. 
the inventor that doesn't have the relationship with you, how can they protect themselves to just feeling comfortable to present to you uh, and them not thinking that you're going to rip them off? Well, we go on reputation. I mean, I don't think there's much, much worry with us. We're, we're very broadly known in the toy industry to be very pro-inventor, very driven by the inventor community. Um, I've been doing this for about 13 years and, and haven't had you know, a single issue, a single lawsuit, a single complaint. We, we really believe in the principle of partnering with outside inventors to license product. So, so we're only as good as our name is. Um, and, and most people who, who, who you know, come to know us um, feel pretty comfortable with us. I mean, obviously, we have non-disclosure agreements. And there are certainly issues with you know, seeing thousands of ideas a year. There are certainly issues of conflicts and, and, and similar inventions being shown. Or maybe someone shows us something that's similar to something inside. Um, in our case, you know, when it comes to I, – I fully appreciate that you, know, you invest your time, effort, and energy in something that's your baby, and you don't want to see someone steal it. I really haven't heard that many instances of, of people stealing ideas in the toy industry. Um, and the truth is, it's oftentimes in the cases where I have heard of people felt their ideas were stolen, they really hadn't invested or developed them to the point where they really had something specific that was ownable. And in other words, you know, you say, I have a, a sort of unspecific idea for a doll, and then four years later, a similar doll comes out from a toy industry, from a toy company. I, just, I really don't believe that those toy companies were, were at least not deliberately taking an idea from someone. Mm -hmm. So obviously, I would say there's a, you know, two or three things I'd recommend to inventors. First of all is try and know the companies you're dealing with and, and, and learn their reputations. And I can certainly say that there are companies in the industry with wonderful reputations who have fostered the inventor community. And there are, you know, companies that, that don't have such great reputations. Um, two is you know, definitely protect yourself with a non-disclosure agreement. That's just, just a no-brainer. I, I wouldn't, you know, kill yourself over it. It's, um, you're probably not going to sue someone anyway if you do run into a, a difficult situation. But nonetheless, it's good to have you know, a solid non-disclosure agreement protecting your idea. Okay. More importantly, though, is, is try and have as much value in your concept as possible. Um, because no one, you know, often, oftentimes I, I've heard, again, situations where people feel that they've been, been stolen and I use them stolen. And, and oftentimes it's because someone comes to someone with, with just that, an idea. You know, not really an invention, not really something proprietary or ownable, not something worked out. And that's when you get into a danger zone. Because if you come to someone and you say, I got a great idea for a toy, it's so-and-so. And they look at it and they go, yeah, but you haven't really invented anything here. You just kind of have an idea for a toy, but there's no, like, where is the, where is the mechanism? Where is the so-and-so? Where is the this, that, and the other? Then you get into situations where they, you know, two weeks later they go, God, that really was a good idea that guy had. Maybe you should, you know, put some people, invest some money into trying to figure out that idea. In other words, ideas, ideas are, are, are very hard to, to own. Our ideas are very hard to protect. Inventions, on the other hand, something specific, something on the table, something people can, you can point to. Something you can say, my thing was six inches, you know, tall, and it had a mechanism with three gears and this, that, and the other, and I showed you this thing that's much easier to protect. And truthfully, that's much harder to steal because no one would want to steal. Because if someone comes into you and they have, you have something that's fairly worked out, you've given them a huge opportunity. You've given them a huge leg up. So that, I think, is one of the most important things. And it's not to devalue ideas. And it's certainly not to, you know, to say that just because you don't have every T crossed and every I dotted that there isn't value there. But in an industry like this, if you're dealing with someone who you're a little bit nervous about, it certainly helps you to have something truly of value. Very, very... Uh... That's great information, Ben. Really appreciate that. Now, on the other side, which is a little bit concerning in a way, but hopefully you can clear this up for us. There's a couple questions. Again, if you want to continue sending emails, you're more than welcome to brian at gotinvention.com. You mentioned that uh, a shelf life of a game could potentially be one to two years. Now, you're, let's say you find this magic idea and you decide to go ahead and move forward with a potential licensing deal with an inventor, what, what is the expectation? What could they expect, Ben, from Spin Master? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say, I mean, that's, that's just working on averages. I mean, obviously, we're all hoping for evergreens. We're all right. hoping to get the next game of life, which has been around for 51 years. Um, you know, we're certainly, we're certainly trying to find stuff that lasts more than one year. I'm just playing on averages. Okay. And when we run a business scenario for, for a toy, typically, you don't really, you, you try and recoup your investment within the first year. In terms of a licensing agreement, the toy industry is just wonderful when it comes to dealing with inventors. And I, I would say that uh, I, I believe it's the, the most 
oriented industry towards inventors um, out there. I know there's lots of other industries that, that work with inventors, um, but the toy industry, it's, it's, a, it's a permanent, well-established relationship. Much as in, you know, in, in Hollywood, there were screenwriters, and every studio knows if you want a great script, you hire the best screenwriters. The toy industry is the same way with inventors. There's a, a stable of professional inventors who do this day in, day out. So the business relationships are actually, um, uh, they're sort of, they're already, they're already defined, and, and it's very straight. Um, they're, they're just sort of a, a generally agreed upon set of principles when working with inventors. And that is, first of all, that typically, um, not every case, but you know, normally uh, an inventor will receive a 5% royalty on, on net proceeds. Um, that amounts to anywhere between 15 and 25% of the profit. It really depends on the product and the margins and such, but in and around that much. Um, an inventor can expect, um, if, a, if a company is looking to exclusively evaluate the product, they can expect an option agreement within, you know, the first couple of months of evaluation, at least. It, it really varies, again, and it depends on, on how much demand there is for your product. Um, an inventor can expect an advance, sorry, a licensing agreement with an advance attached to it, so um, an advanced um, sum of money that will later be recouped from the revenue stream. It varies on what the amount would be. Um, typically in the toy industry, you're looking from anywhere between, you know, anywhere between $5,000 and $150,000, and it's certainly cases of being higher than that. Um, but those are, those are generally what, what, what an inventor can expect, and those are not controversial terms, at least, uh, and they're almost expected when you, when you go in to make a deal. Um, there are certainly cases where the royalty rate will fluctuate depending on what other partners are involved. Let's say in, in order to do your product, we may have to uh, license another third-party technology, or if it's a product that is associated with Disney and we have to pay them the royalty, then the royalty rate would be, would be um, a little bit lower. But again, these, these, are, these are generally accepted principles that really don't even require much negotiation. Okay, and it makes a difference uh, on the advances and so forth, uh, de depending on what sort of intellectual property you have or, or the extent of how far you've actually developed the idea? Um, yes and no. I mean, it's, it's hard to say what makes an advance. The, the truth, the real truth is, um, I mean, obviously someone wants to pay an advance that helps to compensate the inventor for their investment. So if someone comes in with a fully functional, developed, prototype remote control car versus an idea in a napkin, typically speaking, you're going to probably offer them a greater advance. The, the real truth of it is, is it is a market. And what's going to drive the size of your advance is how many other people also want your product. Um, that's just me. People don't often say that, but that's probably the cold hard truth of it. But if you have, you know, 10 companies lined up, every one of them clamoring for it, someone's going to offer you a considerably larger advance than if they know that a product can only be sold to them. So let's say you do have that line extension to headbands. And I know that no one else out there could possibly license it because we're the ones who own headbands. You know that's going to somewhat affect the advance you get paid. Now that said, again, the and the toy world is actually very nice when they deal with inventors, and and that opportunity, truthfully, the toy company could probably take advantage of the inventor, um, and and maybe even try and license it without paying them in advance. But typically speaking, most people understand that it's a it's a give and take in a in a in a long term relationship. So even in that case, you could expect a fair advance of again probably not one hundred fifty thousand dollars. But um, but something you know something that that makes you feel pretty good about investing the time. Boy, that's a that's very very nice terms, and it sounds like it's really a very nice experience to work with somebody like you because you you truly understand, and it sounds like you have a real open door to inventors. So we really appreciate that. That's a big part of our life. I mean, pretty much everything that we've ever done that you know has built this company has been through partnership with another company, or sorry, with another inventor or another company. Um, we're <laughs> We're happy to pay royalties because when we're paying royalties, it means our products are selling. Right. It means you know, it means money's coming in. That's that's fantastic. Um, so Ben, you took uh, a part in the toy and game invention camp with Julie, and Julie, you're still there, right? I know you've been pa patiently uh, listening. Um, I'm still here. I'm still here. <laughs> so tell us about that experience, Ben. I mean, there's young inventors that are going to this camp, inventing products, and Julie's taking this responsibility of putting this kind of event together for, for kids and innovation. What do you, what's your take on that? Oh, it's awesome. I mean, it's just awesome. First of all, shout out to Julie, who did an amazing job with this thing. Um, not just in organizing it, but also even, even in persuading me 
you know, to participate in it. It was really her enthusiasm that made the whole thing um, seem so exciting. The thing is just great. I mean, for, you know, for a company that works with children day in, day out, and also works with inventors day in, day out, it was just a natural, a natural fit. And, you know, I remember when I was a kid going to, I don't know, arts and crafts camp or summer camp or what have you, the idea to have a real camp where kids can come in and, and get an insight into how the toys are made, the toys that they play with are made, and have exposure, you know, to this group maker kids, the idea of, of, a, of a camp where kids can actually step into a maker lab and see a 3D printer and see, you know, computer automated draft, it's just, it's super cool. You know, I thought it was, I thought it was really, really neat. And, and what was your... What was your review like uh, going through the kids' inventions that uh, that that came out from the camp? Yeah, oh, it's great. I mean, I mean, like just the one awesome thing is just the sheer unbridled creativity. You know, not having to worry about market constraints, not worrying about anything else. Just seeing kids' imaginations run wild is the coolest thing in the world. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily look look through this with the eye of is there a product that's been massive to get a license from? Because I don't think that's what it's really about. I mean, in the same way that if you had kids, if you had kids at photography camp, you're not going to expect them to sell their pictures to Time Magazine. It's, I wouldn't put that much pressure on the kids. It was really just about watching kids explore their creativity, learn about the industry. Maybe, maybe you know, most kids I, I think probably don't even know toy invention exists as a profession. So the idea that that a couple of these kids might get the bug and, and want to go into it was was enough of a reason for us. Very nice. And uh, that was fantastic that you were a sponsor of that type of experience for the kids. So I know that Julie appreciates it. And I know just from me being involved in a lot of kid inventor initiatives, that is something absolutely fantastic. And I'd love to bring that to the United States, however possible, as soon as possible. It's fantastic. So, uh, Ben, you, you really gave us uh, a good amount to sink our teeth into. Um, really inspire us to focus on the toy and game industry and coming up with some new innovative ideas and toys and games and so forth. What are some some final tips that you can provide to the inventors that, you know, maybe they have this idea and they really haven't done anything with it or they're at a point where, you know, they're trying to find somebody to make that board and the pieces of the board game that they're looking for or to just design that doll or maybe they're selling it right now and they're trying to bring it up to a point where they're trying to manufacture it themselves or they brought it to a point where they're saying I can't afford manufacturing so let me see if I can license it to somebody like Spin Master. What are some final tips and words of wisdom that you can give us no matter what stage of the invention process we're at? Well. Yeah, I'd separate that into two questions. Say if someone already has something that that they have that they that they have developed, then I would say make an effort to reach a toy company and just try and establish a relationship. And that really depends on, I hate to say it, but how much again you invest in how how good the product is. If someone calls me and says, you know, I have an idea for a beach toy, I have a drawing, it's probably not. You know, I'm probably not going to say yes. Come in right away and and present that to us. Versus if someone comes in and says. I'm a formal aeronautics engineer. I've developed, you know, an RC flying toy. I have three working prototypes, yada, yada, yada. I'm going to be very impressed by that. I'm going to want to see this person as soon as possible. Um, more importantly, I think it's, you know, what I like to talk about is, is for, for people out there who want to get into the world of toy invention. Maybe you do have an idea. Um, if you have a million ideas, maybe you're a professional mentor who's just looking for, you know, new revenue streams and, and new new um, relationships. The, the toy invention world, like, it's hard. It, it's hard like anything else. It's hard. You know, any of these jobs in the world, whether you want to be a, you know, a screenwriter or a songwriter, these are just hard jobs. But the toy industry is, it's great. It's, it's first of all, it's ethical. It's, it's on, like I know in the music industry, in the film industry, and these other businesses that deal with creative people and intellectual property, it's quite cutthroat. The toy industry is actually really nice. <laughs> and we try and maintain that. Um, and like I said, there's, there's pre-established, you know, business terms. There's, there's a, a general set of ethical principles dealing with people. It really is a nice, a nice business to work in. Now it is extremely tough to license stuff, but, um, but if you have something great, it's, it's, you know, an inventor can be king in the toy industry. Um, and I would say that's the most important thing is getting to something that's great. So the, the most advice, the biggest piece of advice I would give is learn the industry. Um, because like I said, the first part is having magic, but just as important as all these unfortunate constraints that dealing with being a mass market company. So, so right away, it's very important that you know what do all the toy companies do? Mm -hmm. You know what what categories does a toy company work in? 
in those categories, what are existing prices, price points? You know, um, if you have a fashion doll that costs $40, Odds are it's not going to sell. Like, look, rules are meant to be broken, and maybe there's something awesome that's going to come out that's, that, you know, changes things. But typically speaking, fashion dolls are $15, $20 each. Um, in the activity section, let's say you have the, the next Play-Doh. And it's like Play-Doh, but it's, it's new and it's cool, and you've never touched anything like it. It's great, but if it costs $20 a can, it's just not going to fly. So there's no point, you know, really investing time, energy, and developing this stuff if you don't have some you know, framework of, of how, how the business operates. And that's what I'd say is learn the business. And the best way to do that is really just go to toy stores, walk the toy stores, look at the different toys, look at how things are organized, look at how, how things are broken into categories, look about how different prices work, look at the different size of things, you know, how big are boxes, um, you know, how, how complex are things. Very important. Um, secondly, I think having a certain insight into how, your invention actually translate into a manufactural product is really good. And I appreciate that not every inventor can go tour a factory in China and, and, and that's not going to happen, but it does, it does, you know, it, you can learn a lot just by comparing things. You know, if you see a doll on the market that has one motor in it, you get a sense of what a one motor doll looks like. And if your doll has considerably more components than that, you can guesstimate that it's going to cost more money. So it's very, it's very good to learn, you know, have some sensibility about the cost and manufacturability of products just by looking at them in comparison to other things that have been done. And the more you do that, the, the greater I think your, your chances are of hitting something that's not only magic and not only super exciting, but can also live and breathe within the constraints of an existing industry. Hmm. It's very interesting. And just from the point of uh, presenting to you, uh, do we show up at your door? Do we send you an email? Do we make a phone call to you? Do we send Julie to go see you? What do we do? Please don't show up at my door. <laughs> um, the one thing I, I ask most. Um, I would say when it comes to, to us is we, we do have um, – we have a bit of an online screening process. I shouldn't even call it a screening process, but we have an online submission process, which allows people to send a foreman with their idea, which gives a general outline of what they're looking, you know, what they're looking to present. And that enables us to, to just to screen and to, to check out, see if things are even in our category. Because as much as we'd love to meet with everyone with an idea out there, unfortunately, there's so many people to do it. Um, so we need, it's definitely an imperfect tool, but we try our best to, to use it effectively. Um, if we aren't able, if we don't feel that we're able to, to meet with you, then we'll certainly refer you over to an agent. Um, and I, I, would, I would not hesitate to get in touch with these agents because, truthfully, they're, they're a tremendous value. And I, I totally get it. They're going to take a huge chunk of your royalty, and people are like, screw that, I don't want to use a person who's just going to take my money. But, but a couple things. One is selling your products is the most important thing. You know, you can have the greatest product in the world, but it doesn't sell. It doesn't matter if you get 100% of nothing. And I have seen numerous cases where you know, reps have really made the difference. Uh, secondly, the toy invention business is not about one invention. It really isn't. Um, you know, it's, it's, about, it's about a constant a constant flow of ideas. So constantly developing stuff. It's so constantly having things come out, and it's a numbers game. You know, I, I, very few people are able to hit it on their first, you know, the first go, and I wouldn't be horribly discouraged if you didn't license your first product. Um, you know, a rep is a great way to get your feet wet, you know, so to establish a relationship, to establish a, um, a bit of a, a history, a bit of a um, reputation for your products will make it that much easier. That said, if you think you have something that's going to knock our socks off, by all means, send me an email and persuade me of it. And if, uh, if it sounds that way, you know, I'd love nothing more to meet with you. And I can think of numerous times where people have called me. Like I said before that example, somebody calls up and says, I was an aeronautics engineer. I've developed this prototype. It uses this battery, this component, this motor. I look at that and I go, man, this dude's serious. I'm into this. Sounds if good. someone calls you know, and says, I'm a mother of three kids in Idaho, and I developed a beach toy that my kids really love, you know, I, I might, it really depends on, on, on what, I, what I think of it, but oftentimes if it's not in a category that we're already you know, really in, um, like let's say beach toys or, or preschool toys, it's, it's a little bit harder. I'm, I'm typically looking, I mean, I hate to say it, we're very open. And, and like I said, we'll try our best to see everyone, but really, ideally, I'm looking for people who, have, who take it seriously. You know, this is a serious business, and people who are really excited to invest their time, energy, and efforts into, into making something cool. Thank you very much, Ben. And we could go to spinmaster.com and uh, look, look on there. I believe that there's something there for submitting your ideas. Is that right? Yeah, 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 okay. 100%.
Super. Okay, Julie, tell us about some upcoming events that are happening in the toy and game industry and especially for young inventors. Yeah, so there there are some uh, fun events coming up. And actually what inspired me to put together this camp was primarily finding out about a contest that's called Young Inventor Challenge. And it takes place every November at Shytag um, Toy and Game Fair in Chicago. And it's a really cool contest where kids um, can enter in their own original toy or game idea. And um, kids compete in a junior and senior category to... Um, present their original ideas, and then basically um, toy or game companies come in, look at the ideas, and the winners get their game or toy actually professionally um, developed and manufactured, which is really exciting. So I saw this contest, and I really thought that kids around the world should know about it and have the opportunity to, to think about toys and games. And as Ben already touched upon, kids don't really have the same filters as adults where they don't realize what is and is not possible and they're they're just thinking about their creative ideas and so that was really what inspired me to start the, the camp in the first place okay so we have the young inventors challenge which you can go to younginventorschallenge.com and you can enter for for that type of event then there's also the uh, event that i had an opportunity to interview 40 unbelievable kids that had uh, inventions that they came up with and presented at the Chicago Toy and Game Fair, which is when, uh, Julie, this year? It's in November, right? Yeah, so it's at the end of November, and the Young Inventor Challenge is on November 23rd. Okay, so that's at the Chicago Toy and Game Fair. It is, yeah. Okay, great. And then I know that uh, the Discovery Games, there's something there as well? So discovergames.com is... Um, a website that was started by Mary Cousin, who founded Chicago Toy and Game Fair. Um, and she's a real powerhouse in the, in the toy and game industry. She founded that fair. Um, she was one of the founding members of Young Inventor Challenge, discovergames.com. Um, and there's a lot of exciting stuff happening basically in Chicago in November. That sounds great. My daughter, she's 11. Her name is Alana. She is gearing up, ready to go. She's making me buy all these little pieces and parts to help her put together, and she's she's looking forward to entering the competition there. So <laughs> she's and very I, exciting. And I know she's in the other room listening because she has headbands, uh, Ben, and she loves the game, and she knows all, all the other games that you have better than probably you and I. Well, not better than, not better better than, than me. <laughs> better than me, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, that's fantastic. Any final points any any other notes or anything that either of you want to uh, just get out there to the listeners one last time you know i just say um you know if you're in the invention world certainly the toy industry is, is a great place to be um we're always looking for new stuff we're always excited for new products and um and always looking for new inventors so um so get into your workshops and come up with something great <laughs> we're looking for, we're looking for the next biggie thank you very much and julie any final words um, I would just like to say that if, if you're a young inventor out there, um, I can't think of anyone who knows better than kids what's fun to play with. So I encourage any young inventors out there to explore their ideas and um, get creative with with uh, their toying game ideas. Fantastic. Julie, do you have an, a website or an email address as well to present to the listeners? Um, well, kids who are interested can go to younginventorchallenge.com, okay. and there's all kinds of information there about how to enter, and uh, there's an email address there as well. Okay, super. All right, thank you very much. That was Benjamin Dermer. He is the VP of Inventor Relations at Spin Master, and Julie Blake, the event planner and, and uh, very active in the Young Inventors community just doing that toy and game inventor camp and helping to put this uh, interview together tonight with both of them. Thank you very much. And uh, like to thank our sponsors. We have Distribution Direct. We have QuickPatents.com. We have Patent Pride. If you're looking to have a plaque of your patent that just got issued, you can go there. Carter, DeLuca, Farrell, and Schmidt, thank you for your support. And, of course, Inventors Digest. Thank you very much for uh, your support. If you're not a reader of the magazine, whether it's online or the print, 
Just go to InventorsDigest.com and sign up for your subscription as well. All right. Thank you very much. Again, I'm your host, Brian Freed. Have a great night from Got Invention Radio, and keep on inventing, especially in the toy and game industry, and reach out to Ben when you're ready. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a great night from Got Invention Radio. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.